0: Good morning. Glad to see all your faces on Zoom and in person. Let's begin with a prayer. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for this time together to learn and grow in our understanding of you and your love for us. Open our hearts and minds as we unpack the book of Esther and help us to see how you work in our lives when we trust you. Amen. I chose the book of Esther because, as most of you know, I'm adopted, and my birth mother's name was Esther. I wanted to know more about this story. So where does the book of Esther come from? Well, the scholars tell us that Esther is a fictional story, which takes place during the Babylonian exile during the 6th century B.C., and expresses well-known themes of Old Testament literature. It contains two parts that were written at different times. The original Hebrew version was probably written in the fifth century BC and the later Greek editions probably written about the second century BC. Only the Hebrew story has been accepted by Judaism. The entire story was accepted by the Council of Trent in the 16th century and it's part of the Apocrypha in many Protestant Bibles. Greek editions according to the New Jerome Biblical Commentary are religious and devotional commentary by later authors quote with fertile imaginations and religious convictions close quote. The Greek editions some argue change the story in four ways. The focus of the story changes from the courage and resourcefulness of Mordecai and Esther to the intervention of God. Two, the introduction of, apocalyptic, of the apocalyptic perspective, say that five times fast, emphasizes the helplessness of humans. Three, the added strong religious emphasis is very black and white, which causes the loss of subtle colorings of the original story. I guess my inner English teacher is coming out here. The broad-mindedness of the original is diminished by suggesting narrow ethnic perspectives. We see this in Haman's anti-Semitic and the Hebrews' anti-Gentile attitudes. These changes have the effect of giving the story cosmic proportions because Israel is at the mercy of a powerful oppressor and drained of all human hope. It looks for divine intervention that will establish peace for the people and glory for the Lord. A little background. At the time of Esther, who was called Hadassah in Hebrew, the Jews were experiencing their second exile, which was foretold to be 70 years long. The the 180 day feast where King Ahasuerus of Persia invites people from all his 127 provinces, including the Jews, to the city of Babylon is to celebrate the fact that the 70 years are up and the Jews are still in exile. And in this celebration, He is wearing the high priest's garments and using the holy vessels from the temple which had been destroyed by the Persians. Just imagine for a minute what it would be like if you went to a secular banquet and the head of the banquet showed up in the archbishop's vestments and was using the communion vessels to celebrate. That's what this was like for the Jews the Jews are living in Persia after being and ruling in the land of Israel for 850 years their temple which of course we know was built by King Solomon and stood for over 400 years was in ruins and after a thousand years the gift of prophecy which allowed the great prophets of the Old Testament to communicate with God was over. God's people are wondering if they're God's people anymore And yet the most striking thing about the original Jewish form of the book of Esther is that it completely lacks any direct reference to God. While there are references to fasting, the direct references to God in the text come from the later Greek version. Mordecai and Esther are classic examples of the righteous wise who seem naive but who eventually turn the tables on clever schemers like Haman. Like Joseph in Egypt, they acquire a high position in a foreign land and use that position to save their people. The story addresses a post-exile problem. How to be a faithful Jew in a foreign land? In exile, the Jews have no temple, no ritual ritual celebration or cleansing, a weakened social structure, and many difficulties in day-to-day life which arise because the Jews were not supposed to mix with, much less marry, pagans. What we see in other scriptures of the Old Testament is that the most common approach to this problem is the creation of Jewish enclaves where the faithful are insulated against the pagan world and nurture a very explicit piety. But the book of Esther has a different emphasis. Jews must participate in affairs of state. They must appreciate the good elements in non-Jewish society and cooperate wherever possible. They must assume responsibility and not wait for God to provide some miraculous solution. This is my opinion, but it kind of seems like they were thinking, we got ourselves into this mess, that is the exile, now we have to do something about it. The story takes 11 months to unfold. Some sources this say that this may be a reminder to the Jews to be patient and persistent as they strive to be true to their calling in difficult circumstances. It is from the story of Esther that the celebration of Purim arises. Yet it appears doubtful that the book was originally written to provide a basis for observance of Purim. It seems more likely that this was a later adaptation to give Jewish justification for a festivity that was probably borrowed from the Babylonians. So who are the characters in this story? Esther is a young woman who, we are told, is beautifully formed and lovely to behold. As we read the story, her cleverness unfolds. So it appears she has looks and brains. She lost both her father and mother, so her cousin, Uncle Mordecai, and you know we don't went over Some sources say he's a cousin, some say he's an uncle. Whatever he is, he's a benevolent person, a relative who's taken her in and adopted her as his own daughter. I relate to that. In a typical device used in such stories, Esther is one of many young virgins brought before the king. The king, of course, selects her and sends her to be prepared for a royal life. We are given some details about what took place during this period of preparation. And it's all about the physical. Massages and fine oils and cosmetics, nothing for the mind. When her time comes to be presented before the king, she wisely does not ask for anything except what her guardian during this preparation period, a court eunuch, suggested. We are told in chapter 2, 17, The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and of all the virgins, she won his favor and goodwill. So he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther, of course, does not reveal to anyone that she is Jewish. Now to Mordecai. He is a descendant of King Saul, the first king of the Hebrew people, and a leader in his Jewish community. And Haman is an Amalekite whose king was Agag, a bitter enemy of King Saul who slaughtered the Amalekites about 400 years earlier. So before anything happens, Haman and Mordecai already kind of have a blood feud going. Mordecai represents all the Jews who tried to maintain their religious and ethnic distinctiveness in a foreign land. Scholars seem to think that there's no reason to believe that the bow which he refused to Haman was more than a conventional gesture of courtesy and respect. Yet Haman sees insult in it. Haman is a symbolic figure who represents all the irrational hatred experienced by the Jewish people as they strove to maintain their identity in a foreign environment. The author of Esther wishes to extend Haman's resentment so that Esther can be a hero, not just for Mordecai, but for all of her people. Haman hates the Jews so much that he is determined to get back not just at Mordecai, but all the Jews in all of Persia. He will have them all exterminated in the same day. How can the Jews defend themselves against all 127 provinces of mighty Persia? Further, there's no lack of ego in any of the three principal males in the story. The king ousts his queen Vashti for refusing to appear before him because he and his advisors think she made him look powerless. Though, Jerome and other sources say he could have been asking for some sort of obscene display, perhaps even in the nude, according to one source, which might explain her refusal. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. Haman is insulted by Mordecai's perceived lack of respect. So, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? (laughs) The women seem to be the only ones in the story taking the high road, but I digress. Let's look at how each of the characters develops as the story progresses. For Esther, this is at least in part a coming of age story. She starts out as a young maiden, naive and sheltered, doing the bidding and asking the advice of Mordecai each step along the way. But by the time we get to chapter D, Esther has come into her own. She herself has turned to the Lord, even though she has sent word to Mordecai to ask all the people to fast and pray. She perceives that she is alone and has no help but the Lord. She reminds the Lord that failure to intervene would give credence to idolatry. It takes a little hutz, but to remind the Lord of something, doesn't it? Now she learns, leans into her queenly role as a powerful protector of her people. She has made the decision to go before the king unbidden and reveal that she is a Jew, even if it costs her life. And it could cost her life, not only because she was Jewish, but also because she planned to go before the king without being summoned. She enters into this fearful moment after days of prayer to the one true God and after deep sackcloth and ashes repentance. She must do this to prevent the extinction of her people at Haman's orders. Then, she cleverly devises a dinner with Haman and the king for the purpose of showing the king Haman's arrogance and setting him up. As we know, the dinner is delayed for a day. This builds suspense and allows us to see Haman at the height of his pride. He cannot let Mordecai's perceived disrespect go. He must get Mordecai. His wife suggests a 50 cubit or 75 foot gibbet or in some sources a stake or gallows on which to execute mordecai this is clearly hyperbole as this would be unworkable 75 feet is about the height of a six-story building (coughs) you know they couldn't even get him up there and this passage is reminiscent of ahab going to jezebel for suggestions the punishment haman plans to inflict on mordecai ends up being inflicted on Haman himself and his 10 sons. An irony we also see in Second Samuel. There King David consults the prophet Nathan who tells David a parable about a man who commits multiple sins. David of course denounces this hypothetical man and unwillingly, unwittingly thereby pronounces judgment on himself and his family. So Haman falls and Mordecai rises to a position second only to the king. Again, irony. First, Mordecai was helped by Haman, of whom the king had asked advice on how to honor someone. Then he is given the exact position held by Haman. This is quite a reversal. We are reminded of Proverbs 16:18, which says, Pride goes before a disaster and a haughty spirit before a fall and also of Jesus' words in Matthew, the last shall be first and the first last. The king now gives Mordecai all the powers that Haman once had and instructs him to handle the situation regarding Haman's edict. But Mordecai doesn't abuse his powers. He uses them to send word throughout the kingdom that all the Hebrews should not be killed on a certain day, thereby contradicting Haman's earlier order and instead of the soldiers of the king overpowering the Jews, the Jews defend themselves and overpower the king's soldiers who had attacked them. So wow, Esther is now the queen of Persia, a heroine who saves a whole race of people. The Jews defeat their enemies pretty much out of nowhere and Mordecai becomes viceroy of Persia, second in rank only to the king in the most powerful nation around. And, in a few short years, the Jewish people will be given permission to go back and rebuild the temple exactly seven years after its destruction, thereby affirming Jeremiah's prophecy so many years before. The story of Esther reminds the Jews living in exile that it is possible to achieve success in the country of one's exile without giving up one's identity as a Jew. It also shows us a powerful woman as a role model in a time and culture where women were mostly powerless. So they feasted and rejoiced and banqueted. Mordecai also sent letters to all the 127 provinces of the king and ordered them to celebrate every year on the 14th and 15th of the month of Adar, which is around the end of February, beginning of March in our calendar. It varies a bit from year to year. The Jews have Purim which they celebrate even today. This year, Purim will take place on February 25th and 26th. The end of this week. It is described as, quote, the holiday of joy on which the Jews dress up and celebrate God's hidden miracles while remembering how the Jews of Persia narrowly escaped annihilation thanks to the bravery of Queen Esther, end quote. On the first day of Purim, for a half day from morning to night, they fast. Then in the evening, they begin to celebrate. And each year at Purim, they give two food gifts to a friend and money to two charities or to their synagogue for distribution to two charities. Historically, we know that the holiday of Purim was well established by 200 A.D. Excuse me, 200 B.C that there were uh, poor in plays around the 17th century and a tradition developed of making three-quartered pastries called Haman's ears. <laughs> By the way, the word poor comes from the Babylonian mean, meaning lot. The ancients, as we know from scripture, often used the casting of lots to make decisions regarding an important action. Haman used the lottery to determine which day to exterminate the Jews. So it is from the term poor that the name of the Feast Purim is derived. So, what are we to take away from all this story to use in our own lives? First, when Esther steps up and takes a risk for her people that may cost her life, we see the importance of care and concern for others, especially those less fortunate, even when it is costly. Today there is an international organization of Jewish women called Hadassah which began in the early 20th century. They are comprised of over 300,000 members in 700 chapters in all 50 states. They are a nonprofit and they raise funds in various ways for charitable endeavors, including two large hospitals where they support care for all regardless of circumstances as well as medical research. The clear racist references and near genocide are things that sadly are still present in our modern world. We might ask ourselves what each of us can do in our spheres on those fronts. Another essential takeaway is the value of prayer. This is not unique to Esther, of course, as we see this throughout the Old Testament. When God's people turn to him in prayer and repentance, he hears their cry. And you and I are no different today. We need to soak ourselves in prayer so that we can hear God's hidden direction for our lives. Finally, as we have seen, the book of Esther is different. In the original Hebrew version, never mentioning God, the story seems to be a series of coincidences and there are no overt miracles. Esther happens to be chosen when Queen Vashti is banished. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot to kill the king and saves the king's life. Again, Mordecai just happens to be placed by the king into a position where he can reverse the hateful edicts Haman issued in the name of the king. And just as God is there in the miracles we hear of elsewhere in scripture, God is there in a hidden way In all these aspects of Esther's and Mordecai's lives and in every aspect of our lives. On every other Jewish holiday, God reveals himself to humans and he creates the relationship. Purim is the day when God leaves it up to his people to see him. Jews, especially as children, wear masks and costumes on Purim, similar to Mardi Gras or Halloween. To celebrate that God is hiding. The story of Esther tells us that there are no coincidences. God's hand is hidden in every aspect of our lives. All those coincidences are really God speaking to us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that through your son, Jesus, you are always with us. As Mother Angelica once said, at each and every moment of each and every day. Thank you for showing us through the story of Esther, how prayer not only can draw us closer to you, but also can give us holy boldness to act, led by you for your kingdom. Remind us that as Bishop Barron says, you are closer to us than we are to our own breath. And that, as Deuteronomy 31.6 says, you will never leave us or forsake us, even when we do not sense you near. Help us learn to know your voice and follow your ways like Esther as she stood against mighty Persia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.